Welcome to the podcast. This is Stacy on the right, and I'm so glad to have you here today. And one of the most exciting things for me is when I get to talk to a mover and shaker who's also in the heart of what we're doing in our healthcare system. And we have a, a lot of things going on right now with the pandemic, and that's why it's so exciting to have with us an expert and someone who's actually getting things done. We have Nikki Johnson, president and co-founder of Physicians for Patients. Her Twitter account is at notaprovidermd, at notaprovidermd, and you can find that link in the show notes for today's podcast. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stacey. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I was really excited when I saw you on the, the calendar. I'm like, yes, let's talk about everything going on. So your website is starkmanapproved.com, starkmanapproved.com. And it's the the article here is Nikki Johnson's War on the Healthcare Cartel, um, filed under medical people and politics. And it talks about you being a staff pediatrician at Cleveland's highly regarded Rainbow Babies Children's Hospital. So you are a physician. You're actually Dr. Nikki. Talk to yeah. us about your history and how you got here. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, oh, boy. So um, <clears throat> just my, for my training, I do, um, I was trained in pediatric uh, critical care, which is basically intensive care um, medicine. So the sickest of the sick kiddos um, are the ones that, um, you know, I was trained to take care of. Um, currently, my practice is mainly um, just doing uh, I function more like an anesthesiologist. I sedate children for a living for 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 procedures. So I'm not as I'm not I'm no longer in the intensive care unit. So that is more uh, uh, has more to do with my uh, willingness to spend nights in the hospital um, than anything else. <laughs> I am now able to spend nights at home and um, be around my family a lot more um, mm. and then still do get to do what I love to do. My So that's my day job. And um, about, wow, it's now going on about uh, five years, I would guess. Um, I was noticing doctors complaining about things on the internet, on you know, social media, getting in groups um, that were physicians and women physicians, and found a lot of the central themes of the things that are actually hurting um, both patients and doctors um, and nurses, and found that a lot of our established organizations weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics were doing more political type advocacy um, than they were uh, actually advocating for the patients and for um, the physicians that they were supposed to be um, helping and supporting. So we tried to figure out how to do it. And there were some great people who had already started putting together some grassroots um, efforts to um, get going, uh, get to, to uh, who reached out to me and said, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, let's, let's join forces. We need more physicians. Let's do it. And so I started, you know, in Facebook groups. Um, that was one of those is physicians working together. Um, that is um, her, uh, the doctor who began that. It's Kim Jackson. She's in Atlanta, uh, Georgia, and she's a family physician. She's amazing. Um, and my other, the other person who was inspirational to me is Dr. Marion Moss. Um, she's in uh, Children's Hospital <clears throat> in, in Pennsylvania. 
and she's just a, a, a fire I mean, a firebrand. I mean, she's 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 absolutely amazing. So they they both kind of lit the fire in me. I'm I'm a doer. I don't like to just sit and complain. I want to be involved. How can I help? How can I? How can we fix this? Now that I know these are problems, and um, how can I fix this? So that's sort of where we started. But um, where Physicians for Patients grew uh, is uh, Physicians for Patients is an organization that is advocating for all patients to have access to quality medical care and um, really, really with the goal of bringing it back to the, the basic patient-physician relationship. And we are specifically focused on the corporate piece of healthcare that has um, driven us into a direction where it's not the physician and the patient making the decisions about their health care. It is bureaucrats in both the government and healthcare entities of all kinds who are making decisions, from the insurance company to the hospitals to the pharmacy benefit managers, all the people who negotiate prices, all of those things. And so um, they started to blend us all together and started to call us all Providers. So you have a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner, um, who those people are specially trained to do extra things that uh, other than like a regular nurse could do. Um, and they they are now we are they have lumped us all into this one term and called us all providers. And then they started marketing um, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants uh, as people who were doing the same thing as doctors. And so we were like, oh, boy, hold on, you know, <laughs> let's put the brakes on this. Why is this happening? Why is this happening, number one? What's the danger in this? And what what's the end goal? So we formed a Facebook group um, led by one of a dear friend of mine who doesn't like to have her name published, but she actually had a really bad experience as a physician in training gets misdiagnosed by a nurse practitioner and ended up having a severe um, life-threatening fungal infection that is disseminated throughout her entire body, and she had to really alter her career from that. And from then on, people just started pouring in stories. And so we got worried that um, people were going to be in danger. And my worry um, mainly was for the people who are already disenfranchised in the healthcare system, the people who have the least amount of access, people who live in rural areas, black people, other minorities. Um, they are, the, the corporate bodies were telling people that nurse practitioners, physicians assistants were just as good as doctors. They could do everything that doctors can do with a fraction of amount of training and, and nothing like medical training at all. And people were going to a hospital or health system and they were getting appointments scheduled with people who were not physicians and they had no idea this was happening. And people started, doctors in the group started sharing stories of harm from patients that were actually referred to them. Um, and so this grew um, a, a group and a, and a grassroots movement to try and educate the public about the differences in training 
um, but also it grew my understanding of how this all happened. And um, it is definitely a lot of backroom deals and negotiations that have nothing to do with patient care and um, your the patient's well-being. And we looked into that and we realized what the purpose of all of this was. And it just, it, it just said, no, we, we have to, we have to stop this. We have to figure this out because this is the root cause of the, everything that's going wrong in healthcare. So this is people, and I, I'm, I'm just jumping in here because I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, Dr. Nikki. Are you saying to me that I'm like in this situation you're describing, I'm showing up to the doctor's office and I think the person who's helping me is a physician but it's really a nurse or a nurse practitioner, which I actually have seen nurse practitioners before. But I'm always told you're seeing our our uh, our clinic's nurse practitioner, not Dr. So-and-so. Is that okay? And then if I say yes, that's who I see. But I've never before seen a nurse where I, I thought that person was the, the doctor. So how, how, how are they pulling this off? Not a nurse, a nurse practitioner or, um, or, or a physician assistant. And that what you described, Stacey, is exactly how it's supposed to go. But there are some people who were who are um, trying to schedule appointments, just to say, for example, and they schedule the appointment, and the and the receptionist tells them, um, well, the nurse practitioner has a, a, a date available that day, or the physician assistant has a date available, but the doctor, you know, does not, or the doctor will see you after. And you know, the patient was actually referred to that specific physician. So the receptionist then says, well, they do the same thing. So, you know, you're pretty much, you know, seeing <laughs> the same type of, you know, experience and skill. You know, that is, you know, it is fine when people understand the difference in the training and, and accept that. Um, there's some excellent nurse practitioners and excellent physician assistants out there, um, but they, they don't have the same training and skill level and expertise as physicians do. They, are, they, are, they can be very, uh, do very well in a, in a very specific area, but they just don't have that broad general scope of knowledge. And it's okay if people prefer that. Um, some people per- say that they actually prefer nurse practitioners because they take a lot more time and listen um, and, you know, have a much more compassionate tone about them. That's the, probably because of the way nurses are actually trained and people like that. That is fine. We're not trying to stop people from actually seeing a nurse practitioner. We just want people to know the difference and know what's happening. And so let me, let me give you the backstory of why this is happening. Um, so in the Affordable Care, when the Affordable Care Act was being written, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, at the time was being led by a physician who believed that nurse practitioners should really be the people who do who are practice primary care medicine. So that's your family medicine, your general pediatrics, your OBGYN, your, you know, just a, a ter- internal medicine, just your general doctors. They think that they should be taking over those spots. Um, they take less time to train, less time to prepare, less time to license and certify, and don't cost the system much at all. They really don't pay much in malpractice at all. Um, in most states, 
they still require a physician's oversight, but the, the but the states each have their own loose terminology about what that is. So it's pretty easy to pop up a CVS minute clinic and staff it with a nurse practitioner and maybe have a doctor on call or who's available in a state that needs a doctor. If the state doesn't um, require a doctor, it's just easy. They can just hire a couple of nurse practitioners and have them do shifts and, you know, be open 24-7 or, you know, eight hours a day, seven days a week, and they make money by then um so that's how that's that's where the thinking was and it was since the affordable care act plan was to give everybody coverage per se um then they needed to find and fill gaps um with people really fast so that people would actually have somewhere to go and again that's a that's a noble goal, right? We want it, we want people to have healthcare access to healthcare, and we can't insure everybody and then not let them have a place to go and get their care. There's not enough doctors to go around. We 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 all know this. Um, but instead of including in there incentives to um, increase uh, medical school matriculants. Um, residency training positions, which is where doctors go after they finish medical school to become, you know, special, to learn their specialty and then take their boards and be certified. Um, those, those positions are funded by CMS. And in 1987, Congress actually put a cap on the amount of resident trainees that we could have. Um, just basically to cut back um, on that funding. So that's where that funding, but that's where that funding comes from. The doctor who's in training, who's in the hospital, that intern, that resident, um, is getting paid with government funds. Very little of that comes from the hospital itself. Um, so they didn't include any any ways to increase the turnout um, or increase the, the physicians who are actually out there working workforce. They instead chose to go with nurse practitioners. So, so then a bunch of nurses who were at the bedside, already in a nursing shortage, decided that they wanted to go to school, get their doctorates. Um, nursing school started churning them out. They started creating these, these online nursing schools that were rapidly turning nurses out. The certificate for nurse practitioner more than doubled from 2015 to 2016 after the ACA um, went into effect. And then right now it's pretty, it's plateaued and they've oversaturated their market. But as you can see now in the pandemic, they've created not only a bottleneck for nursing graduates, um, we don't have enough nurses at the bedside. So <laughs> while, while hospitals are crowded, there's no beds, no beds means no nurses to care for you. So that compounded what was already an issue. 
And that that is a big issue because everyone's being told that we don't have beds. We don't have beds due to COVID-19. We don't have beds. But the people in the hospital are there for various reasons, broken tibia, leukemia, um, you know, heart disease, all kinds of stuff. They're not there because they have COVID. They're just coming in and tested positive. But the reason they don't have beds is not because there's so many more people. It's because we have a shortage. Some people who are supposed to be nursing and some doctors are out because vaccine mandates have been implemented. And then there's what you're talking about, which is it sounds like adding uh, fuel to the fire. We already have a problem. And then what you're describing, this is systemic and it's been going on for a while underneath the radar. Right. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> yeah, so our organization just took aim to actually try to educate and offer legislators other um, other ways to, to increase physicians working um, and to g- graduate more um, more trainees after medical schools because it actually medical schools did increase in number and allow more students to come. But now we have a lot of people graduating from medical school annually, up five to 10,000 um, medical school graduates. These are people who went to school for college for four years, mostly, and then, un- and then medical school for four years. So these are people who are qualified to be doctors, have their doctorate in medicine, who cannot find a place to train um, because we've had all of these caps. So we've got these people sitting out with med school debt, you know, student loan, trying to find a place to work. So we, we have solutions. We have some numbers. And that was, that's the goal of physicians for patients to try and get those numbers up. But we can't do that without taking all of these corporate pieces out of it. And the main players are the pharmacy benefit managers your um <laughs> and there are quite a bit of them and this has been a huge um uh, all of this stuff that i'm saying too a lot of this stuff can be tackled at the state level um which is which makes our work hardest harder because we don't have a lot of funding we don't have we don't have a lot of volunteers there's just a handful of us and we can't take the whole country on and we have to get engaged people to want to fight for themselves. So we like to, on our website, try to give tools for people to, to use, to actually advocate and speak with their, encourage people to speak with their legislators and actually give them the terminology to use. And so I started my podcast, um, free to care of the podcast and taking a little hiatus because it's having some issues at home with family. Um, but, but where can we listen to that? If we want to listen to your podcast, uh, do we just go to our regular podcast app that we're using or, or how do we get to it? So, yeah, actually it's, it's called free to care the podcast. Um, my name's on there um, as the host. It, uh, we have about, I think we have 10 episodes recorded already it is on, um, you can find it on YouTube, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, mainly, I don't know, I haven't looked for us on iHeart, but definitely Spotify and um, Apple uh, Podcasts and, um, and YouTube. Those are the, the, the quickest places to find us. Also on Facebook um, as well with some of the episodes that are, are posted there too. So, um, and that... Uh, what I started doing was basically take, my goal was to take the message directly to the public because legislators were like, you've taken our calls, having meetings with us, but then basically kind of ignoring us um, (laughs) after that, because, you know, none of this stuff is, 
it, it's not bringing you voters if you're not actually being able to be seen and doing something that's that's great that's going to bring in voters and it's and we I wasn't bringing you money <laughs> I wasn't bringing you funding so um, it, it just wasn't coming that way so uh, we we thought the best way to do this was to to spread the word. Uh, directly to the people, have conversations with the people, and so I started. I started the podcast as a live production um, on, you know, Twitter and other social media formats, and to allow people to ask questions. And I live interviewed people who are members of the, um, our our large correlation is called Free to Care. Um, that's where the name came from. Uh, and all the, like the, the leaders of the different organizations. And the organizations are, are pretty cool. There are some physician-led organizations. There are some patient advocacy groups. Um, so it's a, it's a whole host of people who are sort of experts in their one niche of an area um, and where anybody can kind of, kind of join in and help out that particularly cause, particular cause. Um, and, and support it. So some of the things we've actually gotten pushed through, the um, No Surprise um, Bill uh, Act um, was actually passed just before President Trump left office, um, but now Congress it, um, and Biden's HHS is really screwing that over where the patients are um, are not really getting the, the benefit of that. But yeah, that's, that's me digressing. So I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other thing, but um, being involved and being and pushing your legislators. I mean, there we we have avenues out there and that are that make it easy for people to um, to to actually advocate for themselves. And so, listening to the podcast will give you specific websites to go to, links um, to to actually go on and um, you know, send a letter directly to your representative to um, to support. Um, actions that will will help you um, and help you help you know the, the country itself heal its healthcare um, industry. So, um, but what is the most concerning piece of all of this is how much um, backroom, how many backroom deals there are. Pharmacy benefit managers. I don't know if you know this, um, but they are large entities that negotiate prices for drugs and de- medical devices between an insurance company and the pharmaceutical company or the maker of the device or drug. So they negotiate deals and contracts. And these contracts may be different with each insurance company. They are also hidden contracts. Congress allowed this to happen, <laughs> to allow them to make these deals um, with <laughs> the the push from the lobbyists of these pharmacy benefit managers, like Express Scripts um, or big names um, like that, United Healthcare. They pushed saying that they may it, having these contracts public um, will stifle negotiations. So what where we have right now is prices of actual medical care devices and drugs are actually different than how much they actually cost and charge get charged to the patient. And it depends on which insurance company you have. 
So you and I, Stacey, may have the same medication prescribed to us by our doctor. One, uh, my insurance company may cover that completely. Yours may not. Yours may require you to actually take another medicine or an alternate medicine, no matter what your, your, your doctor prescribed, all because of this, this contract between the insurance company um, and the, uh, the pharmaceutical company with the, the middleman being the player or contract with the pharmacy benefit manager. Well, get this. They also, if, when they make that contract and that drug gets sold, you pay for it. They, everyone in the deal gets a kickback or a rebate from it, except for the patient. Except for the patient and the doctor, you know, really, you know, just gets paid their, their normal, you know, uh, revenue, what they, what they make for the actual visit or everything, get nothing from the drug. And so this is basically legal money laundering. <laughs> if, if you have a, if you get a, if you get a medication that's an ex, very expensive medication, like some of these biologics, I actually have psoriatic arthritis. And so I take a lot of injectable meds that are, um, immune modulators, and those those are really expensive. I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars per month injection. Well, a lot of these are subsidized by the pharmaceutical company that makes them, and they have these rebates that you can get too, um, or just kind of any drug, everyday drugs. They may offer a rebate. Well, that rebate is not going to you, really. You are actually being overcharged the cost of the drug. They are just giving you a rebate um, because they've already gotten their discount piece up front. Wow. <laughs> you, see the, you see the scam, how it's, how it's going? <laughs> uh, they're also the reason for the large hike in insulin prices as well, all these life-saving medications. So this is a, this is a huge racket. And um, so... The second middleman group that doesn't get talked about either are the group purchasing organizations. These organizations are the middlemen in between the hospital and the insurance companies and the hospital and the pharmaceutical companies. They decide um, which supplies go to which hospitals. Um, so during the pandemic, in the beginning of the pandemic, when we had a shortage of, of personal protecting a protective equipment like the masks and the gowns and the gloves. Well, that was because the hospitals negotiate with a single source for for pretty much everything, and that is because of contracts with group purchasing organizations. So, if we ran out of masks that were made by a certain company, the hospital was not allowed to go and purchase masks from another company that they were not contracted with in the GPO. So, so we ended up wearing cloth masks that were like these copper-infused masks, which were, were pretty good substitutes, but instead of an isolation mask. And we had one N95 mask in the beginning that we used over and over and over again until um, we started getting more supplies back, all because wow. of these negotiation prices. So that was why people in the community 
were not encouraged to to get masks. I mean, that was a whole that's a whole nother debacle, you know. Too, it is. But, but at least now we know and all of that stuff. Right, we were lied to. Now we know why yeah. they said don't yeah. wear them. The 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 little surgical ones that we see on TV all the time that we've all been wearing, those are actually not effective at all. It's just theater. But the N95s are the ones everyone should be wearing. But also, if you're not wearing it correctly, it's useless to wear as well because it has to be kind of sealed to your face. So for most Americans, probably I'd say maybe 250 to 280 million Americans, it's useless to have on the N95 because they're not going to take the time to fit it to their face. You have just a small sliver of the country that would do it right. And that to me is what what drives me so nutso because we have this rotating mask policy and it's bad for me, and I'm a grown woman, and I can tolerate a lot of things, but the masks mm-hmm. seem to be my breaking point. Yeah. But for the children, they really can't handle it. It's so detrimental to them, yet we see the, the it's like a, an obsession, making sure everyone you lay your eyes on has a mask on, whether it's helping them or not. Yeah, it's, it's sick. It, it really is at this point. And so yeah, at this point, I have to say, I am not representing Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. <laughs> I am representing myself. Because <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's all ridiculous. But um, I, I am so, I, 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 I really, it, it just boils me on the inside um, how we have traumatized our children, not just masks, everything. We have made them afraid to go outdoors, to talk to people, to play with their friends. Without a stupid mask on, that's doing nothing for them. Nothing. And, and uh, you know, we, they can't see faces. Um, there, 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 may, there may be, there's a little bit of data right now that some kids are behind developmentally who were born, um, you know, just, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic or during the pandemic and all they've seen were people in masks. Children do, can still, the babies still can develop. Um, social skills by seeing, um, you, know, you know, your eyes, your hearing, your vocal expressions, that kind of thing, too. Um, but not seeing your face is huge for communication um, and development as well um, for kids. So, and then the, the, don't get me started with the isolation part of it. I have a tween and a teen and girls, and they've both suffered throughout this pandemic. Um, for all of the reasons that you named, and um, just 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 so many more, it's we've it's a disaster what we've done to this country, um, what we've done to our children, and we're going to feel those effects for years to come. Um, just from a psychological standpoint, from a literacy standpoint, um, social skills and communication. Oh, I. I, I, it, it's awful. I have, um, we, we don't see nearly as many kids get hospitalized with this virus. Uh, for the most part for them, it's a cold. And now with Omicron, it really is mostly a cold for the um, school age kids. For the two to five age group, we are seeing croup with that. And that's when the airway gets flamed and the vocal cords get flamed, that first part of the airway. And kids make a sort of a um, what, what we call striders, like it's wheezing, weaseling noise yeah, from right. their throats. And, you know, that's that's inflammation. And, and well, we can treat that with steroids. So, um, yes, it could be life threatening if it's not treated for sure. Um, but most kids with croup do not get hospitalized with croup. Um, but that's probably the worst that we've seen out of, out of Omicron. Um, it's not 
it's not um, getting down into the lungs, so there's not a lot of pulmonary involvement unless the kid already has predisposition for getting um, a pneumonia from it. So the little babies, the infants, the newborns, um, the kids who are already immune compromised or have some other chronic illness. But we still, we really just don't have a ton of data on which kids are more um, predisposed or what, what factors in children are, are um, what we call those comorbidities. We just don't have enough kids who have gotten sick with it to be able to, to have that statistical evidence. Um, and so, and then that most worrisome form of it's called the MISC, the multi-system um, inflammatory syndrome um, that scared people in the beginning. Well, I mean, we've had about, I think, we've had about 87 kids, I believe was the last CDC data, die from MISC, but we're not really seeing that with Omicron. Um, I don't believe that we've seen it. At, we saw it as much with Delta either as we did with that alpha variant. Um, and so it was pretty rare and you couldn't really predict predict that. But so those are bad things and I don't want to downplay that. Um, but I also, <laughs> uh, we, we cannot equally on the other side, ignore all of the other effects of on our children, which I think are vastly more um, um, widespread uh, compared to effects of the actual virus and the viral infection on our children. So then that brings us to vaccines, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and so this is this is a hot topic. And, um, you know, full disclosure, I'm a conservative. I don't believe in mandates. So I mandates um, are to me unconstitutional. You cannot tell someone what to put in their body, especially when you have to inject that thing into their body. Um, and the I, I do believe the vaccines. Um, there is a difference between the people who are come into the hospital and enter the intensive care unit and die. Most of those people have been unvaccinated at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't have any vaccines available. And then when we did have vaccines available, that still remains to be the case. What's not clear is, um, as you alluded to earlier, how many people are diagnosed <laughs> with COVID because they went into the hospital, got a test because they went into the hospital um, and went in for something else and died with COVID stamped um, on their chart um, because the hospital maybe was unethical and was getting, you know, some sort of kickback from the, you know, from the federal government for cases of coronavirus, uh, you know, patients that died in their hospital with coronavirus. I don't know that. I've not witnessed anything like that. Um, I, I don't believe anybody is above <laughs> uh, scrupulous tactics at all. So is it possible? Absolutely. That the, the sad part is we don't have the data and there's no reason why we don't have the data. Well, why don't we know at this point this information of, of the patients who are actually hospitalized with um, coronavirus, um, hospitalized because of it or and died with it or died because of it? We do need to know that um, for people. But um, so that's, 
that's kind of where I am now. With kids, on the other hand, for the vaccine, um, I am, I remain, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm waiting. I, I don't think we have enough evidence, to tell you the truth, um, that the vaccine is, benef- is more beneficial than it is harmful for children. Or, and put another way, the risk of not vaccinating them um, I don't think we have proof that the risk of not vaccinating them is higher um, than it is than um, it is beneficial for them getting the vaccine. And so I, I just don't I don't I don't know that. Um, and being an intensive care pediatrician, yes, we've had a couple you know a few kids in our hospital who died with COVID. Um, you know I can't go into details about those patients, but. Um, I can tell you overall in the country, the predominant kid, child who died with COVID or young person who died with COVID had something else going on in their lives. There are, there are some exceptions of people who were healthy, athletic, um, who died with COVID, but they are the exception few and far between. And there are also comorbidities there, correct? Like they're sick yes. with something else and then they catch yes. COVID-19 and their body's already overwhelmed from fighting another disease. That's the predominant group. Absolutely. So your elderly population and your people who have something else like a chronic illness, like diabetes um, or heart disease or bad lung disease, um, emphysema, um, you know, cancer uh, and immune compromise, kidney failure on dialysis, those patients are, a cold to them is a deadly viral infection to them, no matter what the virus is, Um, but particularly COVID-19, RSV, influenza are pretty deadly um, Mm -hmm. for them. Um, COVID seems to be, from what we know, more deadly. Um, The mortality rate is much higher. However, we still we still we don't know what happened to the to the flu in 2020 either because we actually stopped testing for it. So, and now that we know that the PCR test can you know cross react with yeah. um, influenza virus, um, we are starting to pick up more influenza, and we're also testing influenza again. Um, so it's it, it's interesting that we have a whole almost you know eight to ten months of data lost that we could have learned about how influenza and, you know, COVID together um, kill people or, or one or the other. So <laughs> it is unfortunate because when one thing we are actually known for in the United States, or I should say we were known for is we have an amazing data collection apparatus where we're able to study our population and we're able to track trends and we're, you know, that that's what makes medical care in the United States so unique. We, we have all of this data we can look at. We know how many people yeah. had the flu every year for the past, I don't know how many umpteens of decades. We also can watch the progression once the flu, uh, the flu shot became something, once Tamiflu became something, you know, we, we've, mm-hmm. we've never been this lax on the data and it's because COVID-19 has been politicized that we are, so disappointed, I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and the reason is not, it's not at the local level this is happening. It's at the federal level. Uh, when the CDC tells you to stop testing for flu, influenza, the hospitals are going to do that. Um, so um, it, it's the, the local health departments, 
you know, our infrastructure is not that great, though, either. There are lots of things we actually have to send out to a special lab. So they're not capable of actually handling every single test. Um, and, 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 and our systems are pretty ancient, too. Um, so, I mean, you know, if, if, if that wasn't part of the infrastructure bill, that, you know, the big infrastructure package that probably should have been as well, because we don't have each state, each state, each local level has a different way of collecting data and then sharing that data. Um, so some of the stuff we could stand to standardize um, and then standardize the way it's shared, uh, make that a lot more uniform um, so that we can actually have a little bit more real-time data and more accurate data. Um, so that is something that needs to get done. The CDC, um, throughout the whole pandemic, um, changed some of their reporting throughout as well. Um, so just to even specifically, I mean, I could go and look at every state at one point and look at their very specific data, and now it's it's not as as specific. Um, but even still, I could go to like each state's web website and and find their um, their specific data. Interesting, New York State was actually one of the best. Um, and early on, everybody was watching New York and New York City because they were the epicenter. Um, in the beginning, and you could you could even see all of their nursing home information, all of that, and now it's gone. So it's it's completely gone. I, and I wish I had saved some of the screenshots <laughs> that I took too, um, just for examples, kind of to post how that how that you know unfolded in front of our eyes, how people hid data, you know, showed data, hid data. Like why is that? Why why did we, why are all of these um, practices so hidden. Why, why don't we know all of this data that we're asking for, that we're specifically, why don't we know that um, how many people were hospitalized who had COVID or hospitalized because of COVID? Why don't we know this information? Who's hiding it? Who's making the decision to hide it? What's the reason behind hiding it? Um, I, I don't know that we'll never, we'll really know, but it certainly leaves a lot of room for conspiracies to brew. And what we have right now is a very polarized country um, in how it looks at government agencies, um, healthcare industries, physicians, hospitals, um, and public health agencies. You have people on one end who are extreme. extreme. They don't trust anything, <laughs> the government says. And then you have the people in the other extreme that trust everything. And then you have people like us in the middle who are just trying to get the information and process it rationally and live our lives. Um, but we're not the people making the decisions about things. Uh, it, it's so, it's painful to watch. It's painful to experience. Everybody's just done with all of it. We all are. It's It's palpable. Um, how done. <laughs> we well, I think we, but, but that, that brings us to a place where we can actually get something done. We can help. Yep. We can, we can actually improve things because once people get fed up, they're usually at that point ready to act. And I'm just, I, I, I feel that way too. I've sometimes I just feel like, okay, what's the point of the, you know, even almost even talking about it. 
But the information needs to get out there in order for people to understand the connection. Like you explained the the rebates. I never, I didn't know that. I no, no way of even looking it up. I just thought when they said rebate, you know, I just thought of the normal definition of rebate. Um, and and I, I just have to say, it's also it's 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 being fed up. It's being informed. And then if you're pushed to the brink, if you see something that should have never been politicized like COVID-19 and you realize it's politicized and there's something you can do about it, then you're able to act. And I think that's what you've shared with us today is how we can act in the same way that you did in founding an organization, starting to broadcast the information on your podcast and getting everything lined up so that we can actually do something about this. And and so that's why I'm so glad you were able to join us. I hope we can speak again. Dr. Nikki Johnson, president and co-founder of Physicians for Patients, um, pediatrician, all-around knowledge expert. Thank you for coming on today. And God bless you. Happy New Year. Thank you. God bless you too. <laughs> all right. You have a great afternoon. Yay. You too. All right. So that was Nikki Johnson. And I'm so glad that I got to speak to yet another pediatrician. Why am I always good? Like, I'm always so good with pediatricians. One of my very best friends in the world is a pediatrician. And she and I just love each other. And now I have Dr. Nikki on my side, too. Um, But that is the podcast for today. Find out more at FamilyVisionMedia.org and StacyOnTheRight.com. And we will be back with you soon. 